Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. I'm Dr. Ewan Lawson. Show notes for today's episode can be found at blokeology.io forward slash 036. And today I've been lucky enough to have a chat to Dr. Michelle Swainson. And Michelle is a sports and exercise scientist at Lancaster University. And the main topic for today was talking all about high intensity interval training, HIT. Now, I have to admit, I have a little bit of a confession about this topic that I've been a skeptic about HIT for a long time. Now, I've always had sort of interval training in my running over the years. Um, running and exercise and cycling and things. But I've always thought that there was an element of hit that was a little bit about this being trendy and perhaps the evidence didn't follow it. So I think today I got a bit of a lesson in the importance of paying attention to the evidence and recognizing that, in fact, the evidence does move on and that, you know, the evidence has been developing for this. And um, it no longer is just a rather sort of trendy thing pushed hard by the fitness industry as another new gimmicky way to get fit. And there's really an incredible amount of evidence. And I kind of took the approach with Michelle, who I, you know, who I work with here at Lancaster. And I, and she was really very kind because I pushed her on some of these issues about whether we're getting into the right groups and whether it's safe and whether people stick to it. And she had answers for all of these things. And so it's a really good example for me. And it's a good lesson that, um, you have these, we've got to be very careful about our firmly held beliefs or things that we believe to be true. And, um, allowing ourselves to be challenged and allowing ourselves to take on board new evidence and having our views um, uh, pushed a little bit. So I've certainly shifted my views about HIT. Um, I hope you find it useful too and it does the same for you. Um, If you are interested in hearing a little bit more about evidence-based approaches to lifestyle and health and fitness and all that, I've also got a fortnightly newsletter that I'm sending out regularly and you can sign up for that at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. Okay, so let's get on with the interview with Michelle. Um, And the first thing I asked her is I just wanted to find out a little bit more about Michelle and how she got into sports and exercise science. When I was at school, uh, it all kind of initiated because I remember doing my GCSE PE mock and landing a 93% and I was like oh maybe I'm all right at this so it kind of initiated from there and then I went on did my A-levels and did an undergraduate in sport and exercise science and initially um, the interest was always down the physiology route so um, sport and exercise science generally covers physiology psychology and biomechanics and then you start to carve out the uh, the discipline that interests you the most and um, so I did that and my focus was very much down the sports performance route really and and then I went and did my master's and I managed to do some work with the Great Britain wheelchair tennis squad in preparation for Beijing Olympics so I was getting this taste of elite sport which is also really exciting um but I didn't want to finish my master's and not have a job so I uh, ended up getting a job with Nuffield Health as a health and well-being physiologist and my role there was really just conducting really quite comprehensive health and medical assessments and that was kind of where my interest really sparked because I suddenly realized all these people coming in through the door none of them have a disease but they all have a whole heap of risk factors and a lot of them were lifestyle related so that kind of allowed me then to find a niche and look into 
do my PhD and that was very much around looking at more contemporary risk factors for heart disease. So not the typical blood pressures and cholesterols, but the fitness, the physical activity, the autonomic function, inflammation along those lines. And um, and that's kind of where it went. And now because I've had that taste of that and that's what my PhD was in and a lot of my teaching has been more down the physical activity and health side. So I'm more an exercise scientist than a sports scientist. Um, and we're just rolling from there, really. So it's just a really exciting area to to work in. But I'm glad that I've had the taste of both the sport and the exercise, because now I know that the exercise side's where my interests yeah, lie. Yeah, cool. So well, there's a few things to unpick there. So I guess you maybe. Well, the, the first thing that occurred to me was that you said that kind of a sports science degree is physiology, psychology, and bio biomechanics. I wouldn't actually yeah. put, I mean, I know that there are lots of sports scientists who are interested in psychology, but I wouldn't have actually put that as a, one of the main pillars, but that, that very much kind of is uh, intimately involved these days in terms of any sports science program. Yep. 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 So part of the British Association of Sport and Exercise Sciences, which is yep. our kind of overarching body, um, they're, they're the three core disciplines. Some places will have nutrition as a discipline, but you often that's kind of merged in with physiology as well. But yeah, psychologists, are um, probably one of the really growing um, sport and exercise science fields yeah, now. Yeah, interesting. And again, there's so many... And the, well, I mean, there's just the psychology of... I mean, there's elite sport, which is the other thing I was going to mention there, was that obviously, though you started with elite and that, that you know, the the, um, uh, the the wheelchair tennis, um, you've gone very much more towards the other end now, haven't you? I guess the people, the, the great mass yeah. and body of people that are not um, being physically active. And I suppose, actually, in many ways, you're almost like a physical activity scientist, perhaps. Would that be then an exercise scientist in some ways? Would that be would that be a fair characterization? Yeah. I think that's definitely the way it's swaying. Yeah. 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 And having more of a, an interest down the public health aspect, as opposed to just what responses you get to exercise, looking more about, okay, well, then how does that then impact the real world, yeah. should we say? Yeah. And getting to all those people that are um, not being active and not being busy and i know obviously we work together at the medical here at the medical school though we you know i know that you we don't intersect that much in terms of professionally although just because of the we're in, involved in different parts of the course that's such an important bit yeah. in terms of getting to the medical school the future future doctors to try to get them yeah. interested in um physical activity and exercise as a as a treatment option for for people yeah and i would say just on that that there is a, i don't know if you're familiar with it but there's an initiative um, called Movement for Movement that has been set up to try and embed physical activity into undergraduate medicine. And actually, Lancaster came out as the the only medical school in in the first instance that had actually embedded that. It's just about making sure that students Ooh, use it. God, I, I didn't know that. So there you go. <laughs> so we've just had a, a paper published this morning. Uh -huh. So I'll uh, I'll send it so, through um, to you. Well, um, the Movement for Movement. What does that when we say embedded in it? What does that specifically involve, Michelle? So the Movement for Movement, are um, it's it was initially a public health England initiative. So it was set by um, a lady called Anne Gates, and she basically went on almost like a tour, I guess, around every medical school, every school for health to try and showcase this set of resources. So it's a it's almost like a, a slide set, and it's a pack. So when um, I guess in medical education, a lot of the question is, well, I, I really value that it should be included, but if I include that, what do I take out? Yeah. And and for some people, it, it's, you know, there's so much other important stuff to cover, but physical activity is really as important from a prevention and a treatment strategy. So there's basically a whole set of slide set. So that doesn't make sense. A whole set of presentations 
Uh, one about physical activity or physical inactivity epidemiology. So you put it on their radar. Um, and then there's pretty much a slide set for most medical conditions, everything from cancer, obesity, heart disease, diabetes. So the resources are there. Um, it's just again it's now just about making sure that they get used <laughs> you know what we, uh, the great the funny thing about this is we're only a tiny little medical school and I knew about movement for movement but I didn't know there was a whole set of teaching resources that went with it because actually the bits of the curriculum yeah. that I'm involved in and help run um, gosh well we should we need to totally embed them into our teaching that we do as well for from the primary care side yeah yeah I think so I'm, well, I'm happy to have a chat with you <laughs> yeah. about that and um, but what's really good is that that's been around for a few years, but recently, maybe two weeks ago, the new updated 2018 resources have been right. released. So, and the, I was part of the obesity resources. So the focus was obviously there's all the key information has to be in there, the nice guidance, but it's also, it's not just UK, it's global. So it's now getting quite a lot of attention with World Health Organization. And, you know, it's just about using them, but they all have to be updated in terms yeah. of evidence. So it's not just a whole slide. Oh, well, that's facts. hard work as well. Because I mean, there's a, well, there's a few things there. Yeah. I had Rory O'Connor, who's a um, professor up in Glasgow about suicide prevention a few weeks ago. And he was talking about this gap between the evidence and practice. But it just goes to show how many barriers there are as well. Because, I mean, A, you've got to try and keep the, up to the evidence, which is always a, like, you know, a Sisyphean task in terms of, you know, the volume that's coming out. But even down at our level, at our medical school, where we have an interest and have been prepared to do something like Movement for Movement, we're not even disseminating it fully across all the different areas of the medical school. And we're tiny. And imagine if you're like, a, you know, a Birmingham or a Manchester with four or 500 students per year um, trying to do that. It, there's so many little barriers to kind of getting this yeah. into practice. Um, but Yeah. And I, th I think the resources are there in terms of they're accessible for the yeah. students. But again, it is one of the things is it's about getting that buy in from staff and from students and knowing that it's there, but actually engaging in that material. Well, I'm, so, what, what's, um, what yeah, I would say, yeah, I mean, I think in the profession at large, you can so, certainly for healthcare professionals are listening or anybody else, I think there is a massive buy-in to the whole, there's a whole lifestyle medicine movement going on. And I'm certainly hoping to get some people yeah. on to chat about that in the next few weeks. That a yeah. lot of, and, a lot, and I've talked about burnout in the past as well, and a lot of burnout in the profession is related to this sort of treadmill, this hamster wheel of disease diagnosis, prescribing, not engaging with people. And kind of, when you engage with people about physical activity, and you speak to them about how to get, you know, how to do these kind of things and use that as um, uh, as the sort of the therapeutic measure, if you like. But it's not really about the doctor kind of imposing some kind of medication. Gosh, a, a lot of people, no. it, it really, it, it works for everybody. I think patients relish it. I think the health, healthcare professionals yeah. involved in it, absolutely, you know, they, it really helps them. They feel, it feels yeah. like an incredibly valuable thing to be doing. Yeah, yeah. I think so. And I think the message is sometimes that there isn't a, there's a set prescription for certain conditions, but the reality is, and I always say this because it was um, a comment from one of the leaders in the field, but it's like the best exercise you can do is the one that you yeah. will do. So, you know, yeah. at the end of things, but are they going to stick yeah. with it? Is the, is the question. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of, I've talked a lot about running in the podcast in the past, but that's, you know, if you're not a runner and you're not interested in running, it's hopeless turning I, to a certain extent i think some of that can be overcome because you need to learn how to run some people just think they can't run and it's impossible for them and actually there is a kind of a learning curve with it i think about how to do it better but it, it's just not right for everybody and as you say the right exercise the right movement is the one that you do and it's the one that you enjoy and the one that makes you feel good and there's no bad movement in that regard 
Um, nothing that's so you mentioned high intensity interval training there so one of the things I wanted to ask you about today was to talk a little bit more about it so again I guess I'll set out the position I'm coming from here that I've always been an advocate that runners or people who exercise they tend to the best way to exercise is this kind of 80-20 approach um, where you probably go very and I think it's I think it's more often known as polarized training these days often where you kind of have most of the bulk of your training is at a relatively easy level and you should chuck in some intervals and some harder stuff, whether it's hills or hill training. It's probably a more advanced level. You kind of don't, wouldn't be doing that if you're just learning to run. But high-intensity interval training has been a very popular kind of, you know, you hear it in the media, people talking about it, gyms offering it. So I guess the first thing was to ask you what you think high-intensity interval training is and how you define it. Yeah. So I think, firstly, I think, the high intensity interval training is different to typical high intensity vigorous activity. So some people might be that if you're running, then you'll have a few slow, steady runs in the week, but then you'll have your, your faster run or your hill run. Now that in a sense is potentially just higher intensity. So you're pushing your lactate, you know, you're working above your lactate threshold potentially. Um, But the, the high intensity interval training is where you do the bouts so that's where hills, I guess, is your example of that with running. So the, the actual definition is high-intensity interval training is characterized by brief intermittent bursts of vigorous activity interspersed with recovery or periods of, of rest. And that's as simple as it is. So um, in terms of what constitutes it as high-intensity just differs across the literature in terms of some people will make sure that those, those high-intensity bouts are very close to yeah. maximal um others it might okay. be that they're maybe 85 yeah. so that's an interesting difference so, are you, so in terms of the research literature high intensity interval training because mm-hmm. i guess when i think of hit or these really fierce ones i'm thinking of maximal efforts probably in short bursts and that's probably perhaps the media perception a little bit more if at least it's my perception of what i've seen in the media is it's the really super hard absolutely caning yourself and you do you know and it's get fit in 10 minutes a day kind of is the the banner headline but actually, the literature doesn't necessarily def- differentiate that kind of maximum burst from just more inten- higher intensity burst. Um, not well. It, it kind of does. So you have hit as your overarching yeah. training type, and then the one that you're talking about is something that we call sit. So it's sprint interval okay. training. So in the literature, the would basically be. I'm just going to double check this, but it's um, came from a team in McMaster in Canada, so Burgermaster Gavala, um, and it's six 30-second bouts. Right. So that 30 seconds is supramaximal. Okay. Yeah, so <laughs> if people are familiar with a Wingate test, um, it's basically get you pedal like crazy, then they drop 7.5% of your body weight onto the bike, and you've got to pedal against that for 30 seconds. That's that's a okay. Wingate. Um, so you would do that for 30 seconds, then you'd have a four-minute rest, you'd do it again and you repeat that six times. So that's where the evidence comes for this. You can get fit in three minutes, <laughs> yeah, because that works out as three minutes of high intensity. And the evidence does support that. Um, but then you also have what we call aerobic interval yep. training. So this is um, a model where you would spend four minutes at 90 to 95% of your max heart rate or your VO2 max. Then you'd have four minutes recovery and you repeat that four times. And the other one that's gaining, probably, I think this one's probably a little bit nicer, as in it's nicer than the sit, but it doesn't take as long as the aerobic. And you would do 10 60-second bouts um, with 60 seconds in between. And those 
high intensity bouts are around 90 to 95 percent so there's actually there's different types of hit um in terms of the research evidence base at least right so i guess the one uh, like so the first thing i guess i would say is well i I might ask you i should ask you this question is who do you think should do in who do you think should do perhaps interval training who do you think in particular should do higher intensity interval training who is it for is it for everybody uh, and and my, my, my rider question to that, and it's a very bad habit, this, and I should slap myself for asking two questions. Is it, is, is it safe? Is there any safety data for people that are unaccustomed to exercise doing high intensity intervals? Okay. So uh, in terms of yeah. who does it, I think there's a, there's a big mix. Who I think should do it could be anybody. Um, obviously, your athletes will do it. We know that if we work at a higher intensity, then we'll have greater physiological adaptations and therefore that will enhance our performance. But that adaptation at high intensity happens for everybody. So I think one of the biggest draws for HIT, uh, especially within the media, is its time efficiency. So if we've got this general population, working population, and the biggest barrier to physical activity is time then actually you can get a really good workout in a really short space of time and you will get similar, if not better, benefits than plodding away at a lower intensity. So I think it it could work or, or should work for, for the general population. But there's also a whole heap of evidence that suggests that high-intensity interval training is really effective in uh, diabetics, in heart failure patients even, that have been pushed quite high. Um, so really i guess it also comes down to people's preferences some people will do it because it's done it's dusted and it's out the way some people will do it because they feel like well say for instance if we think of cardiac rehabilitation for instance so patients go into this exercise uh, training program it doesn't push them very hard um and therefore they don't really initiate the physiological changes that's going to prevent them having another heart attack um but they, what we're seeing within cardiac rehab is that they have a range to play with in terms of heart rate zones, but they just seem to keep the patients at the lower end. And you're getting far more people that are in cardiac rehab that are younger and quite right, it's boring. So the high intensity makes them feel like they've done something. Um, I think in terms of the safety thing, I think this is where maybe a lot of health professionals will be like, oh, no, we can't push them that hard. It's going to, you know, it's just going to initiate something happening. And there's a risk with that with whatever exercise you do, but the risk is very, very minimal compared to not doing anything. Um, But actually there was a, I went to a presentation once by a professor from McMaster University and she actually highlighted um, a review that had looked at safety and of all the hit studies that have been done in this period of time, only one person had died, and they actually died doing the moderate control okay. group. So actually, there's not the safety data out there, but also um, because there isn't any real data to say that it increases the risk of another event, it's now getting viewed as something that can be inputted into exercise guidelines. So. Okay. So yeah. The, that's so, yeah, that yeah, yeah that's right. Interesting. So I can I, I think you're right. The safety thing is an ang- an anxiety that healthcare professionals would have about pushing someone up into like the highest ranges of you know intense exercise. But I, I didn't. I wasn't aware that there was studies around you know diabetes, heart failure, 
you know, cardiac rehab at all. So that's um, that would rather suggest it's getting pushed yeah. out into all sorts of what you would perceive as high oh, risk yeah. groups. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the data is pretty in, incredible in terms of the adaptations that they yeah. get. So I guess my other question is: so I'm playing that I'm playing the role of hit skeptic here. Is um, that's all right. one of the one of the things it was quite a wee while ago. Now I had um, Bevan James Isles, who's a um, uh, in the fitness industry down in New Zealand. On he's written a book called Fitness Behaviors a few a few months ago, and he talks about the fact that the fitness industry is very much orientated towards people who are already exercising and are craving intensity. But people who haven't exercised before don't really want intensity. It just it hurts too much, and so we don't target them very well. Mm-hmm. So, and the, what I wonder about hit is: is it is it what is there any data about how good people are at sticking with it? Because let, let's not you know let's not be around the bush. It hurts like hell to do high intensity <laughs> intervals. It is seriously. I mean, you do even in what I would regard as an interval session. And interestingly, my interval sessions on the hills are are classically ten times sixty seconds. That I'll actually I'll run uphill. Yeah. I'll okay, run uphill for sixty seconds. I'll walk up the hill for 60 and I'll do 10 of those. And so that takes me 15, 20, yeah. whatever that is, 20 minutes um, yeah. to do that kind of, and I'm probably obviously in the hit range doing that, but you yeah. really yeah. wish you'd taken up knitting when you, when you do a session like that, it is brutally hard. And it's the kind of thing that if you are just new to it, I wonder whether or not it put you off and whether anybody's looked at that kind of across the population at all. Yeah. I think the start is, I don't think it would be the, initial exercise training that you might give to somebody um because i think there is an element where people need to feel comfortable being active so in those people that are going from nothing to something you know throwing them into a hit session it could either make them think oh great i feel really good and it didn't take me very long or it could make them feel that was too hard i'm not doing it again so that i think it's an individualized approach and i think a lot of that comes down to the type of person that it is that comes through the door in terms of specific evidence i'm not sure of specific studies but i do know that there is evidence out there where people are now looking at hit training but they're they're doing a slightly qualitative angle on it as well and asking you know did you enjoy it would you do it again and the actual in terms of general population at least there is a there is an enjoyment factor uh-huh. in it but i think a lot of that comes down to the fact that it's done and dusted quite yeah. quickly um so i think it has to come down to that initial consultation with a fitness instructor or whoever it might be to set their goals and and maybe work them up to it. However, I think the gains that you get from HIT in itself could be a motivator for some people that they actually can see some quite significant improvements in fitness and so on if they do it. And and we're we're a nation where if we see results, we'll carry on. If we don't see results, we'll quit. So yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a results game in that regard. It's very, and the, the challenge with fitness, I think, and, and physical activity is that there is an argument that what you really need is habit and consistency, and you need to do it over a long period of time. But persuading someone to wait six or 12 months to see any benefit, is it's a, it's a very long piece of deferred um, gratification, delayed gratification. That's a very extended, and that, clearly that's going to put a lot of people, you're going to lose a lot of people along the way. You're going to have a tremendous amount of attrition. People just drop out and give up. And it's the same with weight loss. And I'd always I'd take the approach that with weight loss, the, the best way to do it is to do it over a prolonged period of time by habit and lifestyle change. But the problem with that is you just, you know, hardly anybody sticks with it for long enough to actually get that benefit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you've, so I I get, you're persuading me that. a little bit. One of my things about HIT that I was always, so one of the things I have in mind was, um, this is entirely anecdote, was um, Andrew Mayer. Andrew okay. Mayer? Yeah. Uh, From, yeah. yeah. So he, my, Andrew so, Mayer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he had a, so he had a um, 
he had a he had a stroke, didn't he? And he very much blamed. Yeah. <laughs> he very much blamed the high intensity intervals he was doing. Now, clearly, that's just a yeah. sample of one. And out of no, no yeah. he had. A, I think he had an, a carotid artery dissection. Um, was actually what mm-hmm. triggered him off. That's which was why I was wondering mm-hmm. about the safety thing in terms of people's, you know, that kind of it being more of a. And he was obviously already a tremendously fit um, man. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he ran super quick marathons and stuff. Um, yeah. But I kind of, yeah. I always wondered how much the difference there was between more regular intervals, if you like, and high intensity intervals. Whether or not those those mm-hmm. kind of have there been many studies which have compared different kind of. You mentioned the different, you know, the, the different intensities that you talked about, the hit or the sit. Or what have you? Yeah. I, 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 have researchers been comparing them directly to each other, or have they been always been more just against the steady aerobic group? Uh, most of them are against the the steady aerobic yeah. group. Um, from from my experience and, and nosing through, um, the Andrew Marthings is it's a video that I always find on YouTube and play it when I deliver uh-huh. a lecture on um, on hit because it it's unfortunate because the evidence base is growing and it's so strong in favor of hit but it only takes one person to go in the media and everyone says that it's unsafe and i think there is an element where whatever exercise you do he could have been running Mm. a marathon which is steady exercise and had that at the end of the marathon so um i think it's easy to maybe think oh i've added this this is a new thing that i've put into my training program and now this has happened to me and and maybe who knows but maybe there was some underlying oh yeah I, uh, yeah, that, I, I threw it in there so, because I know that he was perhaps the most prominent some person who's been damaged, yeah. if you like, by high intensity intervals, or certainly portrayed across the media like that. Um, and um, oh, God, it's interesting that you actually highlight that, is because because uh, it was one thing that popped into my head. And yeah, I'm a t- I, uh, and we are human beings; we look for patterns, and so we look for temporal temporality in that regard. So, of course, I'm doing high intensity interval training, and then I have a carotid artery dissection. I, clearly, the high intensity interval, the, the normal human response is to go, that is to blame. And the response of medicine and uh, science and research, the whole thing is, is to break down that those ridiculous assumptions we make and check whether they're yeah. valid or not. But I, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's about, you know, getting the evidence out there, like you say. So even though you use HIT training I know, yourself, I'm so ashamed that I'm now could... using it. I'm, I'm, slightly, I'm not ashamed. I'm slightly, I'm slightly embarrassed that I, kind of, I always thought they were just my normal intervals. But they do actually, they actually yeah. fall under the umbrella of HIT. Yeah, 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 I think so. And like running and, and more elite sports performance, you know, they've been doing it a long time and never really had to label yeah. it as HIT. So, you know, there is that element where a lot of the the key work comes out of McMaster in Canada and, and they're really playing on the time efficiency side of it. And that's where I think, you know, that's why it's tapping into fitness centres yeah. and you know, there's always some kind of hit session going on, like yeah, that you said. I mean, that plays very well. That's like Bevan Jane Bevan said. It's that it's the fitness industry. Is that you get super quick, super fast. Is like a really yeah. easy thing to sell to people. I'm more worried about yeah. whether or not people stick yeah. to it in the long term. We won't know about whether people stick to that in the long term until the long term has passed, and we get longer we get longer studies. Yeah, exactly. We need longer studies in terms of you know some of the the real high mm. the sit. Um, training you know th- those interventions are only lasting for two weeks but seeing massive improvements in fitness um and then you've got the ones that are looking at hit in terms of uh, with obese uh, individuals for instance and the evidence is you really do need more than 12 weeks which we kind of know anyway uh, for that to have those benefits 
terms of the fitness changes in diabetes, the, the changes in glute four transporters are out of this world. But when you look at HIIT versus um, normal moderate exercise. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So, but, but, I mean, I, I guess that always feeds into one of my um, one of the that's the, clini- the clinical side of me wonders as well how much difference it makes in terms of if you're a normal individual, you, can, you want to do high intensity intervals. Whether or not you do, we are seeing physiological markers which are very different. But how much actual performance change it taps into as well, so that you know, in terms of if you're, um, if you're, you know, if you're running, a, if you run a ten k in what fifty minutes an hour, high intensity interval is perhaps going to the amount of time it takes off might not be worth the pain. But I, well, I don't know whether or not you know. I, well, obviously, I can see you shake your head slightly. Well, you're kind of you're not you know and you're nodding your head and oh maybe maybe not. Uh, do, do you think that you still think it's worth it for that sort of recreational runner level? You think it's worth if they want to get benefits, it's worth doing. If it, perhaps the answer you might give us depends on the individual whether they want to whether they fancy it. Frankly, yeah, I, I think so. I think again, it kind of depends on, like you say, the fitter you are, the differences you'll make will be fewer than somebody that's got a lower level of fitness. But I think there's probably a little bit in there. Plus, a bit of variety in your training is a good thing to add in. But I think a lot of the evidence, I don't know if you want me to share some of it with you, but a lot of the fitness change evidence has actually come out of um, coronary artery disease patients. So what they would do is they would um, obviously put them through a maximal exercise test, obviously with a clinician at the side. Um, And there was one study and that had, they did it over 10 weeks and it was three times a week. And that was the four by four um, so the slightly lower intensity, but it takes a lot longer. And they basically saw in the, uh, the uh, I can't get my words out, coronary artery disease patients that did the high intensity interval training, they saw an 18% increase in their VO2 max or VO2 peak over that 10 week period, whereas the moderate intensity saw an 8%. So there's quite marginal differences, or sorry, quite um, significant differences there. And there was another one that looked at... Um, the HIT training group, they saw an increase by 35% in their uh, VO2 max compared to the moderate that was 16%. And even and those that did the crazy sprint one, um, they're Norwegian. Uh, there's a joke within the, within the field that Norwegians are really, really responsive to doing whatever you ask them to do in exercise testing. Um, but over 12 weeks, three times a week, there was a 46% increase in their max compared to a 14% Oh, my God, that's humongous. In moderate. It's massive. So, I mean, again, it's a bit like over that 12-week period, they'll see those changes, but the the sit training, so the really intensive stuff, isn't something that they will necessarily mm. do on a regular basis. But they're all like heart disease patients. Right, okay. Okay, so, so uh, yeah, I, well, I have to back down then, I think, then, because there, so there, there, are, there are really quite yeah. massively, there are really quite, you know, quite insane benefits there. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, one of the yeah. only criticisms that I've always leveled at sports science is that the sample sizes tend to be very small in these groups. Yeah. Yeah. I, but I know there are robust yeah. ways that you can go about sort of managing that. Uh, one of the one of the criticisms yeah. that which is not applicable here is that you're always doing it in young fit students as well, rather than in mm. wider groups. But clearly, that was a group of mm. coronary artery patients with coronary artery disease. So yeah. That's very different. Yeah, the exercise science is definitely broadening itself out to working with clinical pops now, which is really, really exciting. But yeah, the sample sizes, you know, we might have 17, the the crazy Norwegian study that had like the 27. So they're not yeah. massive, but then neither do you get 
you know, there's always dropout, isn't there, with intervention studies? Yeah, well, the interesting um, thing will be to see kind of particularly, I guess, the longer term research will be about actually how can you put these interventions in place and, you know, whether it's just about encouraging people socially to kind of do that kind of thing and let them know it seems to be safe and it could, you could get huge benefits and you can do it yourself. Or whether yeah. it's about more formal programs that you access through your, you know, your GP or the hospital or wherever, that actually yeah. scaling it up, a, whether it can be scaled up, I guess that's perhaps the that's perhaps the gap into getting it really into practice, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think so, and and that's definitely started to happen in cardiac mm-hmm. rehab. There's a big multi-center study on at the moment, um, which is about getting hit using hit as the cardiac rehab. Yeah. Um, exercise intervention compared to the others and you know they're seeing some pretty big changes but you need to get buy-in from from the people that are attending those things as well as the people that are referring yeah. into those well, with most of those interventions like the coronary are they get they're not are they getting them you said it was they, you said sprint interval training but do you mean sprint as an intensity wise or they're not actually running they're on bicycles or like sprint yeah 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 bikes are it, within the research bikes are the way that they do it particularly if you're working with uh clinical patients that might be a bit older then we don't yeah, have course. the balance issue um but yeah and and cycling is easier for us to um control the yeah. intensity i guess that's the only thing as well kind of i'm only I, I, in terms of if you're a runner because I, I do notice that i've got a turbo at home so i sit on that sometimes and i have noticed that yeah. it does seem to give me and it is brutally hard and i stagger off it at the end of an hour <laughs> yeah. and I have noticed even in myself without measuring stuff I seem to get a massive improvement in my ability when I go out on the bicycle on the road and I suspect that's yeah. kind of I'm just basically doing hit training on myself with that on that turbo and seeing huge benefit yeah. in short periods of time yeah um, yeah. yeah I would imagine but, um, I'm more, yeah. one of the things that worries me about running is the risk of injury I suppose because if you go out and you bash yeah. if you're sprinting quite hard it's very different to doing it up and down a track is very much more demanding yeah. on the body than it is um than sprinting on a bicycle but um yeah yeah there might be an argument actually even as a runner for just doing your high intensity stuff on a um on a bike yeah well i mean this is it It almost we should do some form of cross training from an injury prevention perspective anyway so like you say it might be that your cross training day is your hit day yeah Yeah. because i mean because i'm always i'm now paranoid about pinging my calf muscles which i've done several times in the past couple of years (laughs) I suspect I definitely need a stretching and conditioning program as part of my general exercise. So I need to work on that. But this, I'm a bit nervous yeah. about suddenly going out and sprinting really hard, maximum intensity. I could see myself going ping and not being able to exercise. Um, but actually, maybe yeah. I shouldn't worry about yeah. it because, you know, your cardiovascular system is your cardiovascular system. You know, if my VO2 max is yeah. going to climb by 20%, I'd be happy as Larry. Yeah, you're probably at a point with your fitness that your VO2 max won't necessarily go up loads, but you'll shift your lactate yeah. threshold. Yeah, you're right. I would. So you I, can just work at a higher intensity. Yeah. For I think my general VO2 max is pretty damn low, and I, I suspect it. I suspect oh, yeah. it's at a ceiling, though. You're right. I don't think it's going to move too much, but I could certainly get some improvements um, in that regard. So, um, one thing, other thing, I was going to ask you about Michelle. So, the, the hit stuff that's really interesting, and I kind of it also just goes to show how you've challenged some of my. And how you, you you have certain beliefs about things, and I probably have for five or ten years. And actually, the hit mm-hmm. Evans is moving on rapidly, isn't it? And in fact, I'm in yeah, danger sure. of just clinging on to my old prejudices. <laughs> yeah, but I think they're they're valid. But we've now got evidence yeah. to yeah, no, no, absolutely. But you know, it just goes to show I need to listen though, because otherwise, if you just keep on you keep clinging to them, you never move on. And you, it's a, as I say, any yeah. kind of evidence based approach that you've got to keep going back and looking at the evidence again, because you might find out that you got to yeah. prepare, be prepared to admit that. 
Um, well, I mean, I'm not sure that I was wrong before. I think I was just like, I'm not sure the evidence is there. Actually, it looks like the evidence yeah, is there now. Yeah. yeah, and there's some really, really, really comprehensive systematic reviews and meta-analyses out yeah. there now. Okay, so. cool. For those that want yeah, to read yeah. Them. <laughs> well, we're trying to them because I think they are important. Aren't they? That kind of, particularly when you're dealing with uh, smaller numbers, but well-conducted smaller number studies, the meta-analysis yeah. and the systematic reviews really um, become really important. Then, and yeah. cool. So I want to ask you quickly about obesity, and because I know you've done a little bit of work on measuring people, uh, how you know the way that we go about measuring people that are um, overweight, obese, and how we actually go about doing that. Um, and you had a paper on mm-hmm. in PLOS One just last year, were you in 2018? Yes, so it was last year. Yeah. Um, and you could tell me a little bit about that and what you found. Yeah. So um, when we come to obesity and everyone's familiar with BMI and everyone knows that it's not the best, but actually on a population level, it's okay. Epidemiological studies, it's okay. It's just on an individual level, the, the reality is we're either telling people they're overweight and obese when they're not, or we're telling people that they're not when they are. So um, there's always that issue with measures that you use within clinical practice, but they're quick and they're cheap and, you know, they have their place, but there's maybe some other measures that are more valuable. Um, But in terms of measuring obesity, so we tend to use a machine called a DEXA, which many people listening will be familiar with, but it's obviously the gold standard for bone assessment. Actually, it's now becoming, well, in terms of, I would say it's the gold standard for body composition as well, um, on the basis that the gold standard for body comp is underwater weighing. So we're not going to do that on everybody. <laughs> um, but the what happens now with the DEXA, obviously, it will give us um, the percentage body fat and their lean mass amount, but not just as a total for every segment of the body, pretty much. But in, when would it be? Around 2009-ish, uh, GE developed a software with the DEXA that now can accurately quantify visceral fat. Um, So we know that visceral fat is really the problem. You know, if we've got a load of subcutaneous fat, it's not great, but it's where we store that body fat that's going to increase our risk of insulin resistance, diabetes, heart disease, and so on. So we basically did, we wanted to know which measure that could be used in practice. So BMI, waist circumference, waist to height ratio, waist to hip ratio, which one of those was most predictive of this visceral fat from the DEXA? Um, we found that BMI was, you know, not a great predictor. Um, we found that waist hip ratio, we need to not go anywhere near it. Oh, really? So if anybody's doing it, it's, I mean, generally it's not well used anymore, but it still is in the nice guidance, I think, or at least it, it was. And the problem that you've got with waist hip ratio is, it it doesn't respond to change. Okay. So if you've got a waist of 100 and a hips of 100, you've got a ratio of one, so that's high risk. But if you lose 10 centimetres off both, your risk is still one. So that's not great. So basically what we found is that um, waist to height ratio is the, is the best predictor of visceral fat and of total body fat. So I, I know that's going into the 2018 update for NICE. Um, uh, so, but that's been building since about 1996. So that's a really easy measure, and it's literally you measure your waist divided by your height, and you should be less than 0.5. So your waist in um, centimeters, centimeters and your height in centimeters as well, would it be, or meters? Yeah, centimeters. Yeah. Um, so the idea is that your waist is less than half of your height. Okay. Yeah, so, gosh, well, that would yeah. yes, so simple... yeah, that would be. Oh, yeah, that's quite. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, yeah, no, so it's very challenging if you're British, I think, because we almost, we've got this kind of weird imperial metric kind of thing where everybody probably knows their waist measurement or thinks they know that they know what size their trousers are in inches but they probably don't know what they are in centimeters um so i know immediately what jean size i wear say in inches for waist but uh, and uh, you gotta be a bit careful with that because there are lots of people who don't quite measure their they're not wearing yeah. their trousers necessarily on their waist they're often no very true <laughs> yeah but I think that's a simple measure so that was one thing that came out of that study but what we also found and this was only a the one that we've just, the one that you're referring to only had 81 people in it. But within that, when we looked at obesity defined by BMI, yeah. it was one in yeah. seven was classed as obese. When we looked at obesity defined by the gold standard body fat percentage, it was one oh in two. Goodness. Oh, my goodness. So where yeah. have you, um, where, where is that? You said, I think you mentioned that it had just been accepted for publication, Michelle. Or was it about to go in? No, so there's one that's just about to go into, well, we're submitting to International Journal of okay. Obesity. So what we've done is we've, with about just under 4,000 people, yeah. we've developed some reference yeah. data for the visceral fat yeah. function. So that's going into there, hopefully, if yeah, they yeah. accept us. Um, and then I think, because it's all good having these measures and these new measures, but for you as clinicians and practitioners, if you've got nothing to go against to know, well, is that high, yeah. is that low? you know, that's where it won't get used. So hopefully those that reference data will increase utility. But also, you know, it's trying to encourage greater use of DEXA for obesity measurement as well, yeah. where you oh, can. I mean, yeah, I didn't know DEXA was the gold standard. And we do use DEXA, of course, for measuring in general practice all the time for measuring bone density for osteoporosis. Yeah. Um, gosh, it's a bit yeah. of a nightmare getting hold of it. So I can't imagine we're going to get hold of it very yeah. easily for, um, uh, for um, body yeah. composition for a little while, but it'd be nice. Well, we're working in terms of the exercise science team. We're working to get a DEXA oh, wow. up here on campus. So once we can do that, that would be my amazing. Hand up and I'll volunteer to jump in to get my. So I yeah, should say yeah. for anyone, visceral body fat is the, obviously the body fat around the organs, isn't it? And I guess that's that kind of yeah. in the middle. It's that kind of central obesity kind of concern. It kind yeah. of plays into that, doesn't it? So you'd have, th you'd have thought yeah. waist to hip will work, but it, it kind of makes the assumption that you don't have any fat on your hips, that they're just bone. Yeah. But actually, most people do yeah. have some fat across that hip, and it, they won't. So it doesn't. Yeah. It will. If you lose weight, that changes as well. But, but I, I guess it was trying to capture that central obesity kind of thing, wasn't it? But, it, but it's rubbish. <laughs> as you... Yeah, don't, don't do waist to hip ratio. Waist circumference, yeah. that's okay. Um, and But waist to height ratio seems to be generating far more um, favorable evidence, should we say. Yeah. That, and again, it's an easy one to be used. It's been, you know, there's been multiple times when you see on the BBC and it's trust me, I'm a doctor, all those kind of things. They've had the waist to height ratio um demonstrations are on that as yeah. well so i think it's about for clinicians it's just always looking beyond bmi and uh, you can tell somebody th walks through the door can't you but um a waist measurement is far more valuable yeah. i think I mean, I, I've, I, I, i've always defended bmi largely it's certainly not useless and it's but it's just one tool and if you just no. take it as the the uh, the ultimate be all end all thing that defines whether or not you're overweight or obese then you're going you're bound to be onto a yeah. loser because life is just more complicated than that but i also yeah, have seen yeah. people use it as an excuse to suggest they're not overweight to have blokes with muscle yeah. and i go actually i really think you are i can just look at you and tell you are um but actually yeah. the kind of um so i think it sometimes is also people who dismiss it because of that slight concern yeah and that also is probably yeah. a bad way so that's just why i'm careful about not dismissing it as being rubbish is because sometimes I yeah. think people just take that one bit of evidence and use it as an ex to excuse to bury their head in the sand. 
Yeah, I think it just needs to be supplemented with a waist measurement mm. because I think if you can say to people, oh, your waist is 106 centimetres, because it's over 102, that now places you at a very high risk of, it probably has a little bit more impact than, you know, plus they're, they're more likely to see change if their belt notch is going down as opposed wow, to the scale. That's interesting, isn't it? And I think that's, a, I mean, most people use that in daily daily life, don't they? They recognise that when their belt changes that they're obviously losing weight and I lost some weight last month, actually, just four or five pounds. And I've noticed that my belt is hanging off me a bit at the moment. So there's even yeah. just kind of, um, with a, matter, a question of losing five, six pounds, I can really tell the difference. It's come up yeah. the middle. Um, and yeah. I, my, the, it's, a, it's a weird sort of thing that, that you kind of, it's probably the best marker. That I always, and I've always used that in the past, that when your belt starts to feel a little bit tight, that's a sure sign that I need to sack my crisp habit again. Because I'm, <laughs> it's Christmas coming know, up as well. That that's why I kind of, I now have a prehab for Christmas. That's my approach. <laughs> is that I was talking about this with someone else. I can't remember who I was talking about. It's a really, I think having a prehab is a really good approach. In, the, in October or yeah. November, I try and lose a few pounds just to sort of get myself fighting and fighting fit, ready for all the, the, the overconsumption in December. So I don't, have to, I don't have to fight so hard in January then when everyone else is doing it. Yeah, that's a good strategy. <laughs> it's like a prehab approach. It's working quite well. Yeah. Um, okay, so, um, well, it's interesting. It's still a nice guidance, that waist to height. Um, uh, waist to hip rather yeah and it's but waist to height is the way to go well uh, my understanding is it it's it's still in there but that might have been yeah. put to the put to the back but i know waist to height is definitely yeah. gonna feature yeah. so that's i'm, I'm the, not sure if it is still in there my recollection of the nice guidance is that it's it's um bmi plus waist circumference i think when yeah. you look but yeah. i have to double check so yeah. they moved on a little yeah. bit but that waist to height it sounds amazingly powerful and i mean huge differences in the number i, I mean it's obviously a more accurate measurement, but is it a slightly depressing measurement in terms of overall public health epidemiology? Because one in two people are now being classified as obese according to a waist to height ratio. Yeah, I mean, that's only in 80 yeah, people. Okay. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, potentially. But I think it's um, we're, we're just potentially a lot of people that we could be targeting. There's this whole, you know, metabolically healthy but obese. Well, that obese part is because it's measured usually by bmi yeah so um or metabolically unhealthy so there's a i think there's a fair bit of work to do and we're not going to suddenly change things but it's um i also think from an obesity perspective that we need to take the focus away from the weight loss um and and actually just put the focus on increasing the physical activity because they'll get all these other benefits from physical activity so even if they only might lose a pound they're suddenly feeling more confident. They've got a better mood. They're feeling fitter. That you know, whereas if if we just think, all right, you're you're overweight, you're obese, you need to lose weight. You know, yeah. you know that that doesn't necessarily help on the psychological aspect either, does it? So no, I, I think you're right. That it's um, uh, there's a real there's a kind of a negative connotation that it's kind of it's about eating. It's about eating less, probably that losing that weight rather than mm. the perhaps the doing more. And the and you get all the other benefits from doing more exercise and the. As you say there, you know, and we had Brendan Stubbs on recently talking about mental health and, uh, you know, the kind of, or, um, and Simon Tobin talking about part run, which we had a few weeks ago. And actually the, the, um, the social interaction you get from exercising in groups and in communities. So if you can, if we could, we could have a much more positive approach to it. And there's, a, there's every possibility that actually it then becomes an almost unintended consequence that yeah. people probably would lose weight if they're more physically active anyway. Exactly. But we just, you, we don't worry about it and we give them all the other benefits. Yeah, exactly. You see the weight loss as a byproduct almost. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So and I, obviously from what you say, the way to do that is they should get more active and do it in a, possibly they should be seriously considering high intensity intervals for it as well. 
<laughs> Michelle, that's absolutely fantastic. Where can we find a little bit more about you online or about your work? Um, okay, so in terms of uh, me and my work and profile, I guess it'll be on the Lancaster University website. So you can just Google Lancaster University and Michelle Swainson. Um, I'm also on Twitter. So I'm quite active on Twitter. So my uh, handle is at MG Swainson. Um, so usually I'll post anything there that I think is of relevance. I don't typically do anything personal. It's usually something hopefully evidence-based. Um, and then, yeah, if anybody happens to be around Lancaster and they want to pop in and say hi, then they can do that too. Michelle, that is absolutely fantastic. Um, I'll make sure I put links to all those as well. And um, thank you very much. No worries. You're very welcome. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io. Uh, you can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blocology at www.blocology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email, or make contact via Twitter, Facebook, and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blokeology.io. Thanks again. Thanks again.